Hi, this is Bill Feldham coming to you with the Wall Street Journal. And our first uh, article today is Quick Chrome, Safari, and Edge are better browsers for your computer. This from uh, Joanna Stern, July 12, 2020. It's over. Chrome. Over. I'd say I'll remember the good times, your speed, your superb handling of Gmail, but your RAM hovering, battery draining, and privacy disregarding made it easy to not look back. This is the year, people. It's the year I challenge you to pack up your bookmarks and wave bye-bye to Google Browser and pick one that cares more about your performance and personal data. Like I need another... change in my life right now I hear you thinking yet I also hear the sounds of your laptops fan whirling away not to mention you're grumbling when you get up to find your laptop charger because your battery's dead from one too many chrome tabs fortunately while chrome has gobbled up 69 percent of your desktop laptop browser market share According to NetMarketShare, its competitors, all with single-digit percentages, have been laser-focused on kicking Chrome square in the blue dot. Microsoft, new Edge browser, rolling out to Windows 10 machines this summer and available now for download on a Mac, is based on Chromium, the same underlying technology as Chrome, yet its users uses less of your Windows computer's RAM and battery. An independent Mozilla Firefox, the Bernie Sanders of browsers, now puts privacy front and center. Meanwhile, Apple's built-in Safari browser has the best blend of privacy, performance, and battery to offer on Macs. It's only getting better this fall with Mac OS Big Sur. So, What do I suggest after weeks of testing, getting serious with one of these other options? Or, if you have to stick it out or work through your Chrome issues by adjusting some settings, Google promises big performance improvements in a few months. If you have Windows, I could write a dissertation on a browsing testing and all its factors, speed, compatibility, mobile syncing, privacy, blah, 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 blah. I place system performance at the top of my list because of the Chrome frustrations I've experienced during the lockdown when my laptop effectively became my whole office. On Windows, Microsoft Edge is a no-brainer. I don't like how Microsoft is pushing the browser on its users, but frankly, the company hasn't had a great browser since like uh, 1996. Across my tests, the new Edge used about 5% less RAM and processing than Chrome and Firefox. It may not sound like much, but on a Dell XPS 13, it resulted in an extra hour of battery life. And I put it in both my actual use and in a YouTube HD video streaming test. Now, while the new Edge is better than Chrome, it isn't as good as its own processors when it comes to battery life. Nope, not Internet Explorer. I'm talking about the version of Edge 
before Microsoft adopted the Chromium Web Tech. My tests show that the mandatory upgrade costs about an hour of battery life. Microsoft said that with video streaming services like Netflix, you'd actually get more battery life with the new Edge, and the team is working on further optimizations. But I'll take that loss because the new Edge is just better. With Chromium, uh, pages load super fast and you don't have as many web compatibility issues. Google Apps, including Gmail and Docs, worked without a hitch. It also means access to the same extensions as Chrome, uh, those little web apps that live in your browser. I'm also a big fan of Edge Collections. You can lump together all the links from a particular project. All my links related to this column in a collection. Links uh, to the sandals I've been shopping for in a collection. And then uh, there are built-in privacy controls. Microsoft provides three levels of protection. The middle balanced uh, mod blocks trackers on sites you haven't visited before and helps minimize ads following you. It is automatically turned on. The strict mode blocks the majority of trackers on all sites. Firefox has similar default tracking uh, built in. In Chrome, uh, you need to disable cookies tracking in settings and install a third-party privacy extensions for deeper controls. Google is uh, working on some larger-term uh, Chrome privacy plans if you have a Mac. Unsurprisingly, on Macs, it was also built in browser that performs the best. Companies uh, create the operating systems can do more to op optimize for their own browsers, but Microsoft and Apple said they work a lot on how to minimize processor and memory demands from inactive tabs. Safari used about 5 to 10% less RAM than Chrome. Firefox and Edge in my test. Compared with Chrome, Safari kept the 13-inch MacBook Pro running an extra hour to two hours on charge. Uh, plus, the laptop was a lot cooler and quieter, with the exception of an in-browser video calls. More on that below. Uh, none of this is new. Safari has long been a gentle as a feather duster on a Mac. The problem has always been with features and capabilities. While I'd say 98% of the websites I use work fine in Safari, others like my local Cuban restaurant's payment system and a podcast recorder web app I used uh, don't. Luckily, I could order my Cabano and plant Plantains and Edge even on my Mac. Yes, Microsoft browser is great on Apple machines too. Mind blown. But the podcast web app, like some other sites, just won't run unless it identifies a Chrome browser. Then there's Safari's lagging extension support. Good news, in the next release of Safari coming this fall in Mac OS Big Sur, Apple makes made it easier for developers to port Chrome extensions over, plus the updated browser which I've tested in beta on a MacBook Pro is faster and has those little tab icons, aka favicons, uh, turned on by default, like Firefox and Edge. Safari also has lots of default privacy features, including tracker blocking, 
The forthcoming version includes a toolbar that lets you see the block tracker on the site you're visiting and a new weekly privacy report shows you all block trackers even across your iPhone and iPad. The cross-gadget support is another big factor in picking a browser these days. If you are all in on Apple devices, Safari should be your pick with another browser as a backup for web capability issues. Microsoft even made Edge for iOS, so if you have a mix of Apple, Android, and Windows devices, give it a chance. Firefox is also a good option, especially for privacy conscience, but it's not my top choice because it didn't fare well enough in my performance and battery life testing. If you stick with Chrome, Maybe you're stuck with Chrome, either because of your crucial work web apps or because you like it and believe the browser and Google can improve. I view performance on Chrome as a journey, not a destination, said Max Kristoff, director of Chrome Browser Engineer. This is an ongoing investment in improvements to speed, performance, and battery life. When I shared my test results, he said three big improvements were due in the next few months. Chrome will soon be updated to limit the power that resource-heavy ads can consume. A new optimization will allow the most performance-critical parts of the software to run even faster. And, perhaps most significant, Chrome will improve tab throttling by better prioritizing active tabs and limited resource drain from tabs in the background. Mr. Kristoff said this will have a dramatic impact on battery and performance. He says... He's specifically encouraged by early tests on Mac tops. Oh, excuse me, Mac laptops. There we go. Until these fixes arrive, follow these tips to keep Chrome from chomping through so much of your computer resources. Kill the RAM guzzlers. Every open app on your computer runs a number of tasks in your system's RAM. Every Chrome tab and extension also exists as a separate RAM process. Basically a different app. So, close unused ones. Chrome lets you see each tab resource and Chrome uh, and close the problematic ones in the task manager. Click three vertical dots on the right of the Chrome toolbar, then pick more tools, task manager. Dump unused extensions. In the task manager, you can also See which extensions are running all the time and eating up RAM. Disable the extensions you don't use by going to Settings and then Extensions. Limit browser-based video chats. The tab that will take up the most RAM and processing power. The one handling video calls. No matter which browser or computer I use, Google Meet grabs half a gigabyte of RAM for just a single caller. Zoom's dedicated app just took just a third of that. During a call with multiple callers, Google Meet used up to 1.5 gigabytes and made my MacBook fan sound louder than a SpaceX Falcon launch. Unlike Zoom, Skype, or FaceTime, Google Meet doesn't have a dedicated Mac or Windows app, so you're best following Google's tip for optimizing Meet performance. Google, Microsoft, Mozilla, and Apple are all actively exploring ways to improve performance related to video calling. You know what that means. 
another browser breakup could be right around the corner. For now, though, it's Safari with Edge as a backup and Chrome lingering in case of a rebound on my now cooler, quieter, and longer-lasting MacBook Pro. And that's the Wall Street Journal. And then she has a little graph here. Uh, mind the battery gap. Here's how the battery life of two popular laptops perform when using various browsers. She has a Dell XPS 13 with Windows 10 and a MacBook Pro 13-inch. With Chrome, she got 9 hours 56 minutes with the Dell and 7 hours 50 minutes with the MacBook Pro. With Edge, she got 10 hours 50 minutes uh, with the Dell and 8 hours 5 minutes with the MacBook. With Firefox, she got 9 hours 4 minutes and with the MacBook, she got 7 hours 25 minutes. And with Safari, she got 9 hours 10 minutes with uh, Safari and that's only on MacBook and it's not available on Windows. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that article. So let's uh, move on. Let's move on to the next article here. And Washington's NFL team drops the Redskins name, but I think most of you may know that. But let's go over this article that came out. And Washington NFL team officially drops the Redskins name. The team name, logo, criticized as derogatory to Native Americans, will be changed after pressure from fans and sponsors escalated. No new name has been announced. Washington's NFL team on Monday dropped its name of 87 years, the Redskins, bowing to pressure to change a team name widely seen as a racial slur amid the sweeping reckoning over race in 2020. The decision was expected after the franchise announced on July 3rd that it was conducting a thorough review of the name, a process that was catalyzed, uh, yeah, catalyzed by new levels of criticism and a country changed, charged by protests against systematic racism. Politicians, activists, and even the team, team's own sponsors, such as FedEx Corporation, called on the team to get rid of the mascot that dates back to 1933 when the team played in Boston. A new name was not immediately announced. The moniker survived decades of criticism despite, despite being long seen as derogatory to Native Americans. The team owner, Dan Snyder, had vowed never to change it. Until recently, it had continued to receive public support of Commissioner Roger Goodell. But those years of entrenchment were eclipsed by uproars over the past few weeks. The national dis demonstrations against race had an acute effect on the NFL particularly, which has been rocked for years over the issue since former San Francisco 49er quarterback Colin Kaepernick took, to, took a knee during the national anthem to protest police brutality and social injustices. After George Floyd killing in late May, the league faced renewed criticism from players who called on the league to act more forcefully than it ever had before in this area. Goodell, who once endorsed a short-lived policy passed by owners that would have required players on the field to stand for the anthem in an effort to quell the protest 
Kaepernick launched, then released a video in which he encouraged players to protest peacefully and said the NFL had been wrong not to listen to players earlier. An NFL pivot launched a newly animated effort from the league to combat social injustices. But when asked about Washington team name, the league had remained silent, even as politicians called for a change. And some players highlighted the issue too. Rival executives privately said the team needs to get rid of it. The pressure then reached an apex when sponsors of the NFL and the team joined the mounting dissent. FedEx, the team's highest profile sponsor as the namesake of its stadium, asked for the change on July 2nd. Nike, the NFL's official apparel partner, removed Washington gear from its website. Other major financial partners of the team, such as PepsiCo, Bank of America, quickly issued similar messages. Then, on July 3rd, the team announced it was undertaking a thorough review of the name, the first step making clear it would be abandoned. While the team has now taken the next step of officially moving on, the announcement did not include a replacement name. A new nickname was not yet ready, a person familiar with the matter said. The team said Snyder and coach Ron Rivera are working on a new name and design that will enhance the standing of our proud, tradition-rich franchise and inspire our sponsors, fans, and community for the next 100 years. That new nickname could become a new opportunity for the franchise to connect with a local fan base that has grown increasingly disenchantized by the team. In addition, the criticism the team has fielded over the nickname, Washington hasn't won a playoff game in more than a decade, and the once-proud franchise has been one of NFL's weakest for quite a while. It has cycled through coaches and quarterbacks and struggled to find the type of stability that usually produces success in the country's most popular sport. The team has remained private about the process for a new name, with many popular suggestions still incorporating the color red or others that would nod to Washington in some form. Although there is no official timetable for the unveiling of the new name, training camps are set to begin at the end of the month, which could serve as the unofficial countdown clock for the announcement. The quick turnaround will require Washington to jump through a set of logistical hurdles in short order if, the, if it wants its players to have a new logo on the uniform by the time they take the field. Those steps include replacing the team's signature and securing a trademark for the name. A process that could prove more difficult because individuals who have nothing to do with the team have been trying to snap up potential options in anticipation of the change. Applications have already been submitted by others to the U.S. Patent and Trade Office for potential names including the Washington Red Tails, Washington Red Wolves, and the Washington Red-Tailed Hawks. Washington's uh, local elected officials were near uniform as openly opposing the previous name, with some saying that it was primarily obstacle to the team being able to move back into the stadium in Washington, D.C. A key block of the city council members said they would probably vote in favor of letting the team return to the District of Columbia under a new team name. 
Eleanor Holmes Norton, the District of Columbia's non-voting delegate in the U.S. Congress, had also rallied her colleagues to prevent the team from being able to access federal land for a new stadium. Holmes Norton said Monday that with the name changed, there's no controversy now on Capitol Hill and it would be up to the city to decide. The team currently plays in Landover, Maryland, which is not easily accessible by mass transit. The change was also praised by the sponsors who had pressured the team to make it. We appreciate the team's decision to change its name and logo, and we look forward to the outcome of the next step in the process. A FedEx spokeswoman said, In addition to the calls from activists and politicians alike, recent research has indicated that the Native American community community broadly supports a change. One study in the last year showed 67% of people who strongly identify as Native were offended by the term. But the reckoning against a team with Native American names, Major League Baseball, Cleveland Indians, also have said they're conducting a review, has also faced backlash from those who say it's a part of history and a positive tribute. President Trump, in a tweet last week, said the potential changes were to be politically correct. His tweet made it clear that these teams' names their teams out of strength, not weakness. White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany uh, said Monday, he says that he believes the Native American community would be very angry at this. So there you go. That's what's going on there. Confederate symbolism in the military stretches far beyond flags and base names. Pentagon officials signaled last week that Defense Secretary Mark Esper may ban the display of the Confederate flags on military bases to show that the armed services are serious about confronting a long history of racial discrimination. <laughs> but the move would address a fraction of the Confederate symbols that are embedded within the armed forces. For the National Guard battle streamer to the names of ships and streets on Military bases, tributes to the Confederacy are common. While many are decades old, some have turned up in more recent U.S. wars, including patches worn by National Guard soldiers in Afghanistan that commemorate an, an Alabama regiment that fought against Union forces in the Civil War. All of this Confederate herald and nomenclature needs to clo uh, a close look said Sean McFarlane, a retired three-star Army general who in 2015 and 2016 led the U.S. and allied forces fighting the Islamic State. It's overdue. We need to be sure we are not celebrating disloyalty. Pentagon leaders and President Trump have spoken in strictly different tones about the idea of renaming Army bases that honor Confederate officers. Proposals that were energized by national protests over the death of George Floyd, a black man who was killed in police custody in Minneapolis when a white officer knelt on his neck. These generals fought for the institution of slavery. We have to take a hard look at the symbology. Army General Mark Milley, the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, told Congress Thursday. But after the Republican-led Senate Armed Service Committee last month approved a measure that would strip the names 
of Confederate commanders from the base bases, Mr. Trump vowed to veto the legislation. Mounting sentiment in Congress for removing Confederate symbols, the possibility that the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden may win in November and appeals by retired U.S. officers may yet open the door for sweeping actions. (laughs) If it comes, identifying any of the Confederate icons and deciding how to handle individual cases would be an ambitious undertaking. The Senate legislation proposed that a commission prepare a plan to remove all Confederate names, symbols, displays, monuments, and paraphernalia from U.S. military property, which the Defense Secretary would have three years to implement. The challenge is most acute in the Army, which during the run-up to the First and Second World Wars opened new bases in the South as the U.S. military expanded and in deference to local sensibilities, named many after Confederate figures. When the Army listened to local sensibilities, that meant white sensibilities, says Ty Seidel, a retired Army Brigadier General who taught at West Point and is the author of the forthcoming book that deals with Confederate naming in the military, Robert E. Lee and me. With an external enemy, the thought was... This was a way to unite Americans, but black people were largely disenfranchised, so it meant reconciliation only for white Americans, he added. The use of Confederate names was so pervasive that it caught on with some U.S. allies during World War II. The British used the name of Confederate and Union generals to label different models of American-made tanks, including the M3, Lee, after the Confederate commander Robert E. Lee, who also served as superintendent at West Point. Last month, the Marines and the Navy banned displays of Confederate flag, as did the commander of U.S. forces in South Korea. But a broader ban that would cover all the services is now under consideration. Much of the continuing debate has focused on 10 large Army bases, including Fort Benning, Fort Bragg, and Fort Hood. But there are less conspicuous examples, including a Texas Army National Guard training center named Camp Maxie in honor of Samuel Bell Maxie, a Confederate brigadier general. The link between the National Guard and its Confederate heritage has been particularly pronounced in the case of the 1st Battalion of the 167th Infantry Regiment, an Alabama National Guard unit, that traces its lineage to the 4th Alabama Infantry Regiment that fought for the Confederacy. The 13 stars on the regiment's crest denote the Civil War battles in which it fought. The regiment's battle streamers, banners that designate its major battles, also memorializes its Confederacy lineage, as is common among Southern National Guard units. A battle streamer on the unit's flag commemorates Sharpsburg, using the southern name of the Battle of Antietam, where Confederates and Union forces clashed in 1862. The colors on the top of the streamer is Confederate gray, while the Union Army's blue is on the bottom. Lieutenant Colonel Tim Alexander, a spokesman for the Alabama National Guard, said that the unit's crest has been approved by the Army's Institute of Heraldry 
which oversees Army's insignias, while its battle streamers and their color schemes are authorized by the Army regulations. The intent, he says, is to recognize the contributions of the many generations of citizens that have served. On July 1st, Alabama's adjutant general decided that the regiment's soldiers, who would no longer be allowed to wear a tab on their uniform that says 4th Alabama, that insignia, which the troops have worn for years, including during service in Afghanistan in 2012 and 2013, had not been authorized by the Army. Other military services have preserved echoes of the Civil War. The residence of the superintendent of the U.S. Navy Academy, Buchanan House, is named for Captain Franklin Buchanan. He was the first superintendent of the school that later became the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. He later served as the captain of the Confederacy ironclad vessels in the Battle of Hampton Roads and became the only full admiral in the Confederate Navy. U.S. Navy officials have informally discussed renaming several ships, including the USS Chancellorsville, which is named after Confederate Victory, and the USNS Murray, an oceanographic survey ship named after Matthew Fontaine Murray, who served as superintendent of the U.S. Navy Observatory and later joined the Confederate Navy. Navy officials have also discussed renaming two aircraft carriers named after Southern U.S. legislators who advocated racial segregation, the USS John C. Stennis and the USS Carl Vinson. Within the military, the Stennis has been nicknamed Johnny Reb, a common nickname for Confederate soldiers. The Navy declined to comment. A case that has drawn the attention of some historians is that of General Thomas Holcomb, who served as the Marine Corps Commandant from 1936 through 1943 when the Corps expanded a fight within World War II. He was a known opponent of integration in the armed forces. A road commemorating the former commandant is named after him at North Carolina's Camp Lejeune. A Marine spokesman said, There are no talks about changing names at the base. The military also has used naming to underscore its promise to be more diverse. The Navy has decided to name a future aircraft carrier, the USS Doris Miller. He was the first black American to be awarded the Navy Cross, which he received for his heroism during the attack on Pearl Harbor and was killed in action nearly two years later. In 2017, the Army named a new West Point barracks to honor Benjamin O. Davis, who was socially ostracized when he was a cadet there and later became a Tuskegee Airman and the Air Force's first black general. And it is a short walk for Lee's barracks. So there you go. Very fascinating story. Very fascinating. Well, that's all the time I have for this half hour. So hang on and grab your drinks and grab your coffee and your bonbons and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. All right, I got my coffee and I am ready to go. All right, the next article, Congress's inaction may halt immigration. Without emergency funding, USCIS will furlough 70% of staff by Sam Garcia. 
America has lately witnessed radical moves in immigration policy. In June, the Supreme Court struck down the Trump's administration's repeal of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, known as DACA, which protects some illegal immigrants who came to the U.S. as children. Then the president suspended H-1B and other work visas, keeping thousands of foreign workers out. Next, the administration announced a new plan to repeal DACA, and U.S. Immigration and Custom Enforcement halted visas to students whose universities are now meeting online. Harvard and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology sued for an injunction. Yet, none of these shifts are as big as what might happen if U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, known as USCIS, has to furlough nearly 70% of its staff for lack of emergency funding. Fees collected this year from immigration petitions and application fees were supposed to cover 97.3% of the agency's expenses for 2020. In May, however... USCIS predicted that petition receipts would drop 61% through September. To stay afloat, USCIS asked Congress for $1.2 billion in emergency funding. Without it, the agency says it would have to furlough 13,400 employees. There has been no indication that funding will arrive in time, and USCIS knows it. Federal law dictates that agencies must give employees 30 days' notice before a furlough. By July 2nd, USCIS sent all of its notices out, informing employees that August 3rd was the furlough's target date. Supporting USCIS is now seen as a political act. This is likely why the agency was left out of Recent emergency funding bills. Without help from Congress, a skeleton crew will have to oversee most of the immigration system, reviewing millions of petitions a year. Petitions wait time will increase dramatically. Many students won't get visas in time to attend school, no matter what happens in Harvard and MIT's lawsuit. Processing of DACA applications could slow and people who need to correspond with USCIS for work clearances uh, may not get information in time. The disruptions to business operations and people's lives will be extraordinary. As Michael Knowles, an asylum officer and union leader, told CBS News, millions of people will be affected, not just people who have yet to come to the U.S., but millions who are here, millions of workers who depend on their work permits, millions of lawful, tax-paying residents who deserve to become citizens. As elections approach, the volatility on immigration policy is likely to continue. There is no telling what segment of the immigration system the Trump administration might target next. But if the government doesn't have a functioning U.S. CIS... When the next policy shock is introduced, there will be far worse immigration and the businesses that rely on them. Congress should listen to USCIS leadership and quickly grant the agency the $1.2 billion it needs to function. Many immigrants who have bent over backwards to accommodate America's broken system are worried about their status in this country. They deserve a functioning bureaucracy 
that reads their petitions and offers them guidance. There you go. What more can you want? AOC's Hill of Beans. Oh, right. And if you don't know who that is, that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Hill of Beans, the boycott Goya. Radical radicals lack even the good sense to follow Saul Alinsky's advice by William McGurin. It comes to this. They want to cancel black beans. The target is Goya Foods, America's largest Hispanic-owned food company. Within hours after its CEO, Bob Yunanu, uh, Bob Yunanu, I think that's how you say his name, said at the Rose Garden event that America was blessed to have a leader like the President Trump, who is a builder. Hashtag Boycott Goya started trending on Twitter. Naturally, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat New York, jumped out in front. Oh, look, it's the sound of me Googling how to make your own adobo, the Queen's Congresswoman tweeted. That's a popular Goya seasoning she wants people to go without. But Goya CEO isn't backing down. When asked the next day on Fox News if he'd apologize, Mr. Yunanu was succinct. Hell no. It's easy to point out how senseless and counterproductive this boycott is. Founded in 1936 by Mr. Yunanu's Spanish immigrant grandparents, the company is a living example of the American dream. Mr. Yunanu was at the Trump White House in the hopes his company's story will inspire other Latino entrepreneurs. He points out that he visited the White House for a similar celebration in 2011 when Barack Obama saluted him. He was also praised by Michelle Obama for Goya's big role in her healthy food initiative. None of it matters to, to AOC and her comrades. In the same way, it is futile to try to persuade mobs tearing down statues to distinguish between Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant. The progressives targeting Goya aren't interested in facts or debate. They aren't interested because they don't build, they only tear down. Goya now has their attention not because a boycott will improve life for anyone, but because it feeds their celebrity and self-righteousness. Consider Miss Ocasio-Cortez. Her defeat in 2018 of a longtime Democratic representative, Joseph Crowley, was a political upset, but her chief con contributions to her constituents since then is that she was instrumental in killing a deal in which Amazon would have opened a second headquarters in her district. Her efforts cost her constituents 25,000 jobs, billions in lost tax revenue, and the knock-on effect to the rest of the local economy. A successful Goya boycott would have similar destructive consequences. Ms. Ocasio-Cortez's example speaks to the priorities of the modern progressives. She has 7.6 million followers on Twitter and has inspired an action figure, a comic book anthology, and a recurring role in Showtime's animated comedy, Our Cartoon President. When she deigns to talk policy, 
she favors multi-billion dollar pie-in-the-sky ideas from the Green New Deal to Medicare for All and tuition-free college. In this, she has plenty of progressive companies. In Seattle, a group of self-styled liberators, complete with their own armed securities, occupied several blocks near the Capitol Hill district. Mayor Jenny Durkin said, we could have the summer of love. The reality was two murders in the so-called CHOP over 10 days and several more people shot. A 19-year-old African-American man died when paramedics couldn't get through because they were turned away by protesters. Ms. Durkin's police chief complained that the cops were unable to respond to emergency calls reporting rapes, robberies, and all sorts of violent acts. How did Mayor Durkin think this would turn out? Or, look at New York. Legends hold that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. He has nothing on Bill de Blasio. With shootings and murders rising to levels not seen in years, the mayor opted for performance art. Last Thursday, Mr. de Blasio answered to the city's problems was to help paint Black Lives Matter in huge letters in front of Trump Tower's Fifth Avenue entrance. Never mind keeping citizens safe, ensuring the public schools provide a good education, making your city more attractive for jobs and investment. These kind of concrete concerns are deemed too pedestrian or perhaps too hard by today's progressives. They're not even that good at radicalism. Remember, the subtitle for Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals was a practical primer for realistic radicals. He warned about overreaching, nothing that, nothing, or noting that unless targets are narrowly selected, boycotts will probably fail as people tire of them and drift back to their old ways of shopping. In particular, he warned boycott organizers to carefully avoid essentials such as meat, milk, bread, or basic vegetables since even selective buying weakens after a period of time as opponents cut his price below his competitors. So what do AOC and her follower progressives choose? To boycott all 2,500 products of a beloved food brand that reminds people of their grandmother's kitchens. As a result, for every hashtag Goya way or hashtag boycott Goya tweeted, there now appears to be a rival hashtag buy Goya tweet from those purchasing more, more Goya products. Goya is lucky. Lucky that in Bob Yuna, uh, Yuna however you say his name, it has a CEO who understands what a paper tiger the cancel culture really is when leaders stand up to it. And lucky, too, that the woke politicians pushing this boycott are more obsessed with theater than a practical progressive agenda that might leave someone or something good behind. So stand up to the cancel culture. You'll win. All right, moving on here. The next article from the Wall Street Journal, First Black Fed President Warns of Systematic Racism's Economic Toll. National upheaval coincides with shifting focus at Central Bank. We are a different Fed, Atlanta's Raphael Bostic says, by Nick Timoros, 
Timorosas. Rafael Bostic, the Federal Reserve's Bank of Atlanta's president, is shining a light on how economic and social upheaval have changed how the central bank talks and thinks about racial and economic inequality. Mr. Bostic, an economist whose work has focused on racial disparities and access to capital, has helped lead those public decisions as the first black president to lead one of the 12 regional reserve banks in the system's 106-year history. In an essay published after two intense weeks of national unrest following the killing of George Floyd while in police custody, Mr. Bostic framed injustice in moral and economic terms. Systematic racism is a yoke that drags on the American economy, he wrote. In an interview, Mr. Bostic said many of these themes getting attention now have been the subject of long-running but mostly private discussions inside the Fed. What changed is that a lot of the issues underlying those conversations have been laid starkly before us in a way that really makes it difficult to not talk about them, he says. We are a different Fed in a lot of ways. Mr. Bostic said writing the essay felt risky and that he was gratified by the response. The Fed doesn't usually step out like this, he says. The essay was powerful and courageous, says Jonathan Reckford, chief executive of Habitat for Humanity International and a director of Atlantic Fed. Almost everyone, if they're honest, would admit it's uncomfortable to talk about these things. The pandemic's economic and health toll has hit black American and other minority groups hardest. It has coincided with a rethink inside the Fed of how it should evaluate the impacts of its policy decisions on those at the margins instead of focusing on broad aggregates, said current and former Fed economists, including Mr. Bostic. Lessons of the last five years are also weighing heavily on the Feds now as it considers how to support the economies from what could be a long and difficult series of shocks. The Feds delayed and ultimately curtailed interest rates, increasing after a presumed pickup in inflation never materialized, even though unemployment fell to the low low levels that the officials associated with firmer price pressures. The Fed grew more sensitive to employment conditions than it had been because the expansion went on long enough that the less educated and minorities started to come back to the labor force, says Claudia Sham, a former Fed economist. In three years at the Atlanta Fed, Mr. Bostic has put peculiar emphasis on economic resilience and the hurdles poor Americans face in becoming upward mobile because of high housing costs in the nation's most prosperous cities. Those issues being fought over in our streets right now have been front and center for him his whole career, says Sean Donovan, a Harvard classmate. As President Obama's housing secretary, he recruited Mr. Bostic to a top post at the Department of Housing and Urban Development in 2009. As an undergraduate, Mr. Bostic initially planned to study to become a chemical engineer before majoring in psychology and economics. Mr. Bostic, who is 54 and was raised in Deloran, 
New Jersey by Caribbean immigrants, or Caribbean, depending on how you want to say it, said he was initially drawn to study how people make decisions and later how urban places grow. Access to capital is really important for minority communities, and the evidence is pretty clear minority communities don't have that access, said Mr. Bostic. He joined the Fed in 1995 as an economist after completing his economics PhD at Stanford University, first as a researcher and later as a policymaker. He has shaped how federal agencies interpret two major pieces of legislation, the Fair Housing Act of 1968 and the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977. Mr. Bostic initially declined to be considered by the Obama administration when they approached him about being nominated to the Fed's seventh member board last decade. At the time, he had already been commuting between Washington and his home outside of Los Angeles, where he lived with his longtime partner and now husband. The job as president was more appealing, although it almost didn't materialize. In 2016, now Fed Chairman Jerome Powell was a Fed governor who served as central bank liaison with the Reserve Bank. He and Fed Chairwoman Janet Yellen had pressured the committee searching for the Atlantic Fed's next president to find well-qualified minority candidates for the top job, according to the people familiar with the search. The Fed was under pressure from Congress to diversify its senior ranks, and Mr. Powell and Ms. Yellen believed the lack of diversity reflected poorly on the Fed, these people said. The Atlantic Search committed, Committee drew from the private sector and nonprofit executives who serve as directors at the bank. They were close to, the, to naming a different minority candidate for the job when the f- financial disclosure problems forced the committee to start over, according to people familiar with the matter. At that point, Ms. Yellen recommended that the committee reach out to gauge whether Mr. Bostic, whom she knew from prior work, would want to apply for the job. What really impressed the committee with Raphael is his ability to translate the theoretical in very practical terms, said Mr. Rockford, who declined to discuss details related to the search. He said Mr. Bostic carries an unfair burden by being the first black president of the Fed, ba- Fed Bank. You are going to speak for African Americans and the LGBTQ community, and that's not fair, he said. But it is also true that he has a credibility to speak from his personal experience that I hope influences the broader Fed and has a ripple beyond the Fed. Mr. Bostic said his position doesn't insulate him from the racial profiling one encounters as a black man in America including being stopped by the police while minding his own business. I don't think there's an African-American male in the country who would answer no to that question, he said. If I was going to dwell on that, I wouldn't have time to dwell on anything else, but it's there all the time. The Atlantic Fed District comprises Atlanta, or excuse me, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, and parts of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee, an area that has sizable minority populations. Staff at the bank who accompany the Fed leader across smaller cities and towns and districts say that going around with Raphael is like following a rock star, says Dennis Lockhart, Mr. Bostic's predecessor. While Mr. Bostic says his career 
has felt like succession of different firsts, the Fed post is the first time his achievement or position has reached people that I've never met. He's often stopped after a speech or public engagement by well-wishers who want to tell him how excited they are by his accomplishments. Getting to see how happy that makes people is a privilege, he says, in a world that is oftentimes tough and hard. For his 25-year class reunion in 2012, Mr. Bostick's Harvard classmate, which includes three Obama administration cabinet secretaries, elected him marshal, a sign of his high regards. I didn't know anybody else that had so many friends in our class and so many friends across different groups, said Mr. Donovan. Fed officials have said they are working hard to address a lack of diversity in their ranks, including perceived hostility to minorities and women in economic professions more broadly. A staff and leadership that better reflects the nation will limit the potential for blind spots in any of the Fed assessments, they said. As an example, Mr. Bostick pointed to studies of the impact of stress on decisions. Because poor people are stressed more often than others, it shouldn't be surprised that their decision-making suffers, said Mr. Bostick. That reality does not penetrate as much as it should in policy-making circles leading to policy choices that rely on flawed assumptions, he says. So this uh, article is contrary to what this man has achieved. So he's achieved what this article is contrary to. But either way, it is what it is. And let's see, we read those. All right, New York pushes to track some U.S. visitors to stem the coronavirus. Airport travelers arriving to New York from other U.S. states on the state's quarantine list will be required to fill out detailed contact forms upon landing. So this is the reason not to go to New York. Airport travelers arriving to New York from other U.S. states that are on New York's quarantine list will be required to fill out detailed contact forms upon landing with fines and a summons for noncompliance, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said Monday. And this is from July 13th, yesterday. The new policy, said Mr. Cuomo, is a safeguard to protect New York from further spread of the coronavirus from other states where infection and death rates are rising. Travelers who don't comply, the state's contact form can be fined $2,000, required to report to court and face a mandatory quarantine. More than a dozen states, including Texas, California, Arizona, are on the state's quarantine list. Travelers from those states are required to voluntary quarantine for 14 days upon arrival in New York. Mr. Cuomo has reported repeatedly said that the spread of COVID-19 in New York was caused by travelers arriving from Europe at New York's airports. None of this is pleasant, but we've gone through this before, said Mr. Cuomo. We can't be in a situation where we have people coming from other states in the country bringing the virus again. It is that simple. New York recorded 10 deaths from the virus on Sunday, with fewer than 800 people statewide hospitalized. The lowest level since March 18th, says Mr. Cuomo. New York City saw no deaths from the virus during a 24-hour period, says 
Mayor Bill de Blasio. Mr. Kumo on Monday also gave the criteria for schools to reopen. A regent must be in the fourth phase of reopening with the coronavirus infection rate below 5% based on a 14-day average. If a regent is above 9% infection rate on a 7-day average, schools will be closed, says Mr. Kumo. All of New York State, except for New York City, is in the fourth phase of reopening. Mr. Kumo said the state isn't going to put children in a place where their health is in danger. Determination on when schools will reopen will be made the first week of August, says Mr. Kumo. Miranda Barbat, a spokeswoman for the New York City Department of Education, said the city's schools reopening plan are guided first and foremost by the health and safety of our school communities. We are constantly monitoring all health indicators and require physical distancing, face coverings, and enhanced cleaning when schools return. We will continue to coordinate with the state on school reopening plans, she says. In New York City, Mr. de Blasio said the city now is able to test some 40,000 people daily for the coronavirus, and the infection rate is around a relatively low 2%. However, there is an uptick in the number of coronavirus cases among people ages 20 to 29. Oh, that's the rioters' ages. City health workers, he said, will step up outreach to that age group, dispatching mobile testing vans to places where young adults have been congregating outdoors. Mr. de Blasio also said the city has expanded face covering guidance and now recommends that people keep a face covering on at all times in retail, work, and other shared indoor environments where other people are around. Even if there seems to be a lot of space, just keep that face covering on at all times. It's a good precaution, says Mr. de Blasio. So there you go. Liar de Blasio wants you to wear a face covering even though he is not most of the time. He is definitely one of those say as I do, not as I don't. (laughs) But either way, it is what it is. But that's all the time I have for this week. So I hope you really enjoyed uh, the articles that I selected for you. So until next time, this is Bill Feltham. God bless you, and God bless your week. In Jesus' name, amen.